there's a structure for that. It's a flow through structure. If you plan on closing everything here and going down there, that also looks slightly different. And it depends on what scale of business you're going to operate, how you want to get paid. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Welcome to a special episode and we're actually Gary Hibbert and I tag teaming this podcast together. I'm going to release it on my podcast. Gary is going to release it on his podcast and we have decided to make this episode uncensored. And so if you, you know, are going to be offended, please don't listen to this one, listen to the next one, but we have Darren Cabral that we are both interviewing today, who has been on my podcast before as well. We were talking about the elections and all the different platforms and all that good stuff. But before we get into that, Gary, how are you doing? I am great. Thanks for having me here. And I'm actually excited to do this one here with Darren because I did listen to the podcast that you guys did before. And I was like, listen, you know what? I, I want to sit down and have a conversation with Darren. He's a, he's a smart guy and he's, and he's doing some great things that uh, I think a lot of investors are thinking about doing. And, and, and there's also a lot of investors that have actually gone ahead and done it as well too. Right. So I think this is a great episode for, for anybody who's interested in, 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 in venturing down the path that you have. Yeah. And you know, the, the really cool thing that is happening. And I think the tides are slowly turning. I mean, we kind of both know where, where we stand. Uh, and I feel like Darren also um, has that same mindset, but there, are, there is a limit to this. And, and I look at the trucks and what they're doing and, uh, you know, it, it brings a lot of, of emotion where, you know, I think that we're, we're headed in the right direction. So with that said, let's bring in Darren. Darren, how are you doing? I'm good, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So obviously, you know, we want to keep this raw. We want to keep this uncensored. Yeah. You know, look, at the end of the day, we're not saying that that the pandemic is not real. It is 100% real. You know, like I've had COVID, you know, I'm sure many, many people have had COVID. Some fared better than others. But ultimately, there's, there's just some things that are not 100% right that are happening as well. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of media that's kind of being hidden from what's, what the, some of the truth is as well. Any thoughts on that? You know, that could be a question for either one of you. Ooh, um, I mean, yeah, right away, I'd love to go down this rabbit hole because it's quite, it's quite a big one. But um, yeah, I think there's no denying that there's a virus going around and people are getting sick. I think we all agree on that now. I think where the problems start to come into play is, you know, how much control and intervention should a government have on people and how long should that last? At what point do we make consensus as community and say, we've done enough. There's really no much more. There's not much more that we can do. Anything beyond this is starting to, you know, enroach a little bit on that freedom. You know, I get the argument in the beginning. We don't know what this is. We're uncertain. We're not sure. But we know now. We know what's happening. We know how many people are dying. We know how this is affecting people, how it's spreading. We know these impacts now. And that's why you see countries as, at the time of recording this, like England, you know, starting the ball rolling on removing all these restrictions, removing masks, removing vaccine requirements, and several other countries in Europe following suit. You know, at what point do we look at our government here in Canada, especially, and say, why are we still pushing more lockdowns, more restrictions? More? So at some point we have to evaluate and go, okay, someone's not telling us the truth. Who is it? What are we missing? Right. Yeah. And I agree with that as well too, right? Is that, look, when you start censoring doctors and people that are, have a different opinion, right? The truth always comes to the top. 
And you shouldn't be censoring people from saying what they want to say. If, if people and the con general consensus is that whatever this person is saying is incorrect or false, then they will stop listening to that person and they're going to go to where the truth is. And so with all the censorship that's happened, you can still see the truth is rising up to the top. People will always find other platforms and other ways to get the information out. And that's what you're seeing. And, uh, and just kind of going back to what you said in the beginning there, Darren, yes, I 100% I agree that yes, this is real. There is a pandemic going on out there. However, there are ways now that if you feel comfortable, if you want to take the vaccine, you can. And if you don't, then that's your own risk. This, the government should be there to provide everything that they have so far. Then the conversation now should be between you and your doctor, period. That's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's my take on it. Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's funny because that, that is where it gets dangerous. Like you mentioned censorship. And it's like the problem with censorship is who gets to decide what's true, right? If, if there's a body that says that's false, who are they? Where's their information from? How does one side get to decide? And, you know, there was things that I wrote a year and a half ago or two years ago on social that got my accounts disabled and banned that now are coming out as medical truth. Like them saying, oh, natural immunity actually is more effective. And that's coming out of CDC. If I said that a year ago, I was wrong. That was fake news and I was spreading misinformation. So how do we, especially, never mind me, but to your point, when doctors say that, like you have people going on the Joe Rogan podcast and saying things, they're trying to deplatform them for saying it. And then they're coming out six months later saying, no, actually, that, that is the case. It's like, well, so it wasn't fake news. It wasn't misinformation. So now what you have happening is censorship is actually not suppressing fake information. It's only propping up one side of information that a particular group gets to decide is right. And that's a huge danger as well. Yeah, 100%. I think they said the difference between the news uh, and, and the conspiracy theorists is about six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's a great point. Just, just wait, it might become real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, and it's one of those tough things, right? Because this is where the unfortunate part is it's divided so much of the country on one side to the other. And it doesn't mean that the one is right and one is wrong. But, you know, we I don't think we've ever been so divided. And I also don't think that we've ever had so many people like I, I know so many people in Florida, in Costa Rica, and this is kind of where we're bringing the topic to light because, you know, obviously this is a great country. I still think it's a great country, but it is interesting how many inquiries there have been about leaving and, you know, potentially going to the U.S. or going to a different country to have a little bit more freedom. And this podcast, you know, was recorded on the basis like Darren reached out to me you know, maybe a month ago or, or a few weeks back and said, hey, you know what, I've, uh, I've gone through the entire process of working through how to move to the US and you want to do podcasts about it. And I said, you know, that, that sounds good. And, you know, I know Gary and I were, were planning a little trip at some point to Florida and, you know, hopefully that can still happen as well with our, with our spouses and whatnot. And, you know, even just trying to see, okay, like, is there an opportunity to be snowbirds? Is there an opportunity to leave for a few years and come back, work remotely? I think the pandemic has brought tons of opportunity for remote work, right? It's not even, you don't need to be physically somewhere anymore. I mean, so much, you know, in the last couple of years have, uh, have been able to, to be done, has been able to be done on, online. Uh, and so I think that there is an opportunity now to wherever it is that people want to move to, you know, it's definitely more possible today than it, it was three years ago. Thoughts, thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. And the way that I'm starting to look at it now has become, there's kind of two sides to this whole conversation that I, I hear going on now, right? There's, 
if you're going to move, you have to make the decision on what you're trying to get out of that move. And there's two sides. There's the freedom and compliance side. And that's trying to decide if I'm limited in my quality of life, like, do I think where I live now is going to limit my quality of life? And I won't be able to have the best life for myself and my family. Therefore, I need a solution to get me out of that position into a place where I can have that quality of life, right? That's one decision. But the other side of that is for, you know, like us business owners that run a business is, even if you can get some sort of that quality of life back, like let's say, okay, you don't need vaccine requirements anymore. We don't need masks anymore. Great. But what are the impacts that the pandemic has created in Canada on, on business, these restrictions, these real estate taxes, these, all these things they're proposing that business environment here is changing as well. And so there's that conversation to be had. So when you, when you start looking at like, should I leave, should I up and go to Florida? What could a solution look like? You have to look at it from both the personal freedom perspective and the business wealth and success perspective and ensure that, you kind of get both of those out of that and that you're, you're working in line to achieve both because some people only need one. Like some people might, might be at a stage where they're saying right now, listen, I'm going to sell off my business in Canada. I'm going to sell off my investments and I just want to get to Florida. I want to get south so I can enjoy and be free. That's one thing. And that requires one set of strategies and, and, and ways to implement. But the people that are going, no, no, I don't want to just get out of here personally. I want to get my business over there because I don't believe in doing business where I am right now. or I don't enjoy doing business where I am right now. And so that's a whole other set of, of steps, processes, and strategies that we can talk about as well. But each person has to take a second to sit down and think about that and decide if they want one, the other, or both. And then it's a matter of going through the strategy. But I think it's a valid point. I think a lot of people, um, I get a dozen like messages a week of business owners upping and leaving, selling houses, selling businesses. Um, some of them are just kind of half-half, like you said. They're just kind of snowbirding down there and coming back. Um, but every week, a good dozen of them I'm, I'm hearing, and I've never had anything like that before. So it's definitely happening. It's definitely a conversation. Um, and it's something I want to explain a little more about as well. But I'm interested to hear what Gary has to say too. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, for me, that, that is something that I've been thinking quite a bit about over the last year. And when you start to get into this feeling of, well, I need to leave my country, that's a problem. That means things aren't going the way that you want it to go. And when you look in other places and you're like, well, hold on a second, they're free over there. Why are they free? Listen, people, people in the 40s left Canada to go to another country to die for freedom. People want freedom. Look, there's also other people that want security and they want people to tell them how to be secure. And that's fine at the end of the day. If that's what you want, that's okay. But if you want freedom, then you've, you know, you, you've got to be able to get it if you want it. And, and, and that's, that's a God-given right, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I agree. Right. Now, with that, I mean, you know, we're getting pretty deep here, but if somebody's listening to this right now and they say, well, what are the first steps? How do I, if I'm thinking about moving to Florida or somewhere else in the States, where do I go? How do I start that process? And it sounds like you've done that, Darren. And if you can maybe kind of talk to that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of jump in from a high level standpoint. So I have to preface it all by saying the process of getting into the U.S. depends on two things. One, it's the thing I just talked about, which is what exactly you're trying to move there. Is it just you? Is it a whole family? Is it a business? Do you have a job? Are you retired? That will change the process. So I think the majority of my focus will be from a business perspective, a business owner and investor perspective. Um, but I'll give it a high level with kind of more generalized terms, which is basically at a very high level, if you want to get up and move to somewhere like Florida or the U.S. in general, you need to A, find some form of residency permit, some way that you're going to be allowed to live in a country. There's many, there's dozens, and they're all basically 
ways that you can tell the US government, I'd like to live here because I have a reason. Here's my reason. For some people that's school, for some people it's a job offer, for some people it's a business, for some people it's an investment, but you need to figure out which category of, basically it's a visa, it's a residency permit in the form of a visa that applies to you and your situation. Once you figure out which one of those visas applies to you, it's figuring out what you gotta do to get it. And usually for a lot of people, the easiest way that I found has been through immigration lawyers. There's a lot of them. They specialize. There's a bunch in Toronto that specialize in helping people get those visas in the U.S. and starting that immigration process. Once you've done that, then you can figure out the second portion, which depends on what you are. Like if you're getting a job, you already have a job offer, you're going to go down there and work. If you have a business, you're going to have to figure out, do you close a business, open a new one? Do you open a subsidiary to a Canadian? All those things will, will go down that rabbit hole. But the high level of it is you've got to figure out what visa you qualify for to possibly live in the United States and connect with a lawyer that can help you go through that application process first and foremost. Okay. So let's, because this is a, a real estate investing show, let's assume that many of them listening today, it's not necessarily for a job, not necessarily for school, but maybe for trying to get in as an investor. And, and maybe we can look at the business side afterwards, but let's just say they're interested in figuring out how to move to the U.S., as an investor, what are some things that you've done on your end or that you can share with us based on your research that you've done and, and all the lawyers that you've spoken to in the past? Yeah, so it's pretty much whether you're a business owner or an investor is going to be about the same process because the two common routes are essentially an E-1 and an E-2 visa. And the differences of these visas are simple. With the E-1 visa, whether you're an investor or a business owner, you're going to apply based on the premise of I want to do business in the States and I'm willing to put up some form of capital to start that business. The threshold usually is a standard is about $100,000 you're going to put into that country. So you're going to open up a new uh, corporation to do real estate, for flipping, for buying, whatever you're going to do. You're going to set up your company in the U.S. and you're going to invest about $100,000 into that company. There are ways you can negotiate that down to as low as, like they've had people apply with $50,000 they usually look at the business you're trying to start and will judge what a fair rate of capital is. Like if you say, oh yeah, I'm going to build a giant acquisition firm that's going to buy up all these multifamilies. And then you're like, but I only want to put in 20 grand. You're like it's impossible. You can't start the business like that with 20 grand. So it has to be reasonable. Usually the threshold is a hundred thousand, but if you are a smaller operation or you're doing something kind of more basic, um, like maybe you're just going to start a wholesaling business or something and there's not a ton of overhead, you can make the argument that like, no, 50 grand will cut it. I can get an office space. I can get some equipment and I can set up and start doing what I got to do, some marketing. Um, and so that's the E1. The E2 is actually the one that I applied for because I also have my, my main business as the marketing agency. And so we have a good chunk of our revenue already coming from the States. However, this applies to some investors who have been doing business in the US as well. And so the E2 visa is a visa that allows you to apply to live in the United States if you already have a percentage of your income coming from the United States. Usually it also has to cross $100,000 in income from the US to your Canadian Corp. Um, and there has to be a percentage where of all your international income, 50% or more has to be from the US. So you can't have like 100 grand from the US, but then 200 grand from China and 300 grand from Russia. Um, the majority of your international income has to come from there. And then you can apply with that. You get all the same things. Both of them will get you five-year residency, basically. You can live there. They apply to your spouse. So if your spouse isn't involved in your business and they need a job, they can actually go down there. They can get a job. You can both get social security numbers. You can open bank accounts, credit cards, the whole deal for five years. And you can renew both of those indefinitely. Those are the two most common that I've seen for investors and business owners. Okay. So now in regards to these visas, right? So depending on which one you, you, you think makes the most sense for you, if it's the E1 uh, or the E2. Now, what about if you have family there? 
what if you have your, your, your parents are there or your sister or, um, you know, uh, whatever else, is that a better route because you've got family there or is this the better route? From my understanding, this is the fastest route. This is the fast and simplest route. I mean, there's always opportunity or family member can sponsor somebody um, to come in, but it doesn't necessarily, and this is why immigration is so complicated because it's so broad. It depends on the situation because there are paths to like green cards where you can get a green card and work towards nationalization, which is full citizenship with certain family connections. Like that might be, oh, my wife actually moved down there for work last year and I've decided that you know, we've been apart. It's been difficult. I want to move down with my, my legal wife and I'm going to live with her. And I want to stay there. I don't want to come back. That's a good argument for nationalization or for that green card. Um, and that might be easier and cheaper if you have that particular scenario. But if it's just like cousins or a parent, or if there's no real, unless you can make an argument that there's a reason why you'd have to go be with that family and stay with them, it's not going to be any easier. Um, it's just depends on the circumstance. Typically as business owners and investors, this is the quickest thing because you can apply for this and literally in like a month or two, have your papers and be heading down there. Um, it's a really straightforward process. So there are some countries, you know, Costa Rica or Bahamas, where you can become permanent citizen, or maybe it's not the, say, the right word, but you can essentially get some kind of, you know, ability to stay there with the purchase of a property or a certain amount uh, yeah. worth of property. Is that something that is an option for the US? Yes, so typically a lot of people will um, talk about this thing called golden visas. They're either golden visas or they're permanent residencies. Um, and it, it implies to this, this kind of strategy where a lot of countries will let you invest a large amount of money and you're basically just purchasing residency. It's like, you put this much money in, here's your passport. And that definitely exists. The US has a program like this, it's just, not within reach, I would say, for the average business owner. So we're talking close to a couple million dollars um, of like liquid capital investment that has to go into the country. And a lot of that, they get very strict on where it comes from. You can't like, you know, borrow it from a family member, put two million in and then take it out. Um, it's got to be like capital you're putting in in some form of infrastructure or real estate or a building or a large development project. Um, those do exist. To my understanding, they're still a lot more complicated to go through. They're obviously more expensive. Um, if you don't have to do it, it's better to just, you know, like for example, the E2 and E1s, your application fees are a few hundred bucks. The lawyer's a few thousand bucks and that's all you got. And then you can work the rest out later versus putting millions of dollars in unless you absolutely know that that's an opportunity. Like I would only do that if that opportunity came up first. Like if I knew there's an opportunity to put a couple million in, that's the opportunity, that's the move. I would do that. I wouldn't look for residency through that program, not in the US, but there's a lot of countries if you do a quick Google search and just pull up like top golden visa programs, there's a ton of great European countries, Caribbean countries that you can do a hundred grand in real estate in a deal and get a passport for life, like for your whole family. Those kind of make sense. The US is a little up there in its ticket price. Now, what if, uh, for example, now I've got my investment company club up here, Smart Home Choice, Sarah's part of the right club, and we decide, okay, you know what, we're gonna expand into the US. Can you do that just from, your, you know, you say if I bought a property down to do it from home, or do I actually need to buy an office space? And then on top of that, do I actually have to hire somebody as well to like, am I providing jobs there? No, there, well, there are some programs and that's what I mean by the broadness of it. There are definitely some programs that will involve around actually getting an office space and how many people you hire and what jobs you create. But for the E1 and the E2 that I described, there's really nothing. 
Um, like with my E2, especially if you already have revenue coming from there in any source, you really don't need anything. You can just go live there. And it's under the guise of, we already do business with this country. I'm there to build relationships and meet people. And that's what I'm there for. Um, I'm not getting it based on I have to create jobs or anything. The E1 is, is similar. So you do have to make the investment, let's say hundred grand, but they don't really dictate where you have to put that. You could open a new bank account, register a new corporation, put hundred grand in the bank account, tell them what you're going to use it for, submit kind of a business plan of what's going to be happening because they will want that. But then it's up to you how you do it. They're not going to hold you in any certain number of jobs or a particular space. You could totally work from home as long as you meet all the other criteria. That's for those two visas. There are other ones, but I think this is why a lot of people are gravitating towards the E1 and the E2 and multiple lawyers I spoke with gave the same advice. It just seems like those are the easiest where you don't have all those obligations and requirements. You can just go ahead and get down there and do whatever you need to do to run the business. Right. I mean, it is interesting. Can I ask which one, which one you applied on? Yeah. So mine was the E2 visa because for the marketing company, a majority of our revenue was already coming from U.S. clients. So we were able to qualify for that. And you said it was good for five years or was it two years? Five years. A lot of places you'll Google, they'll say two years or three years. But when I talk to the lawyers that are doing mine, apparently you can apply right away for a full, like a full five-year period. And if it gets approved, you get five years and you can renew it indefinitely. So there's no cap that like when your E2 or E1 runs out, you have to get something else or go back. You can just keep renewing. Like I've had my lawyer tell me they've had clients renew their E1s or E2s five, six times. Like they're just still down there. They've been living there. They have kids, they have houses. It was just easier than going to, for example, um, getting a green card, which is like a permanent residency or becoming a citizen, which by the way, then makes you for tax purposes, a U.S. citizen, which has one of the strangest tax systems in the world in the sense that once you become a green card holder or a citizen in the U.S., you pay taxes in the U.S. no matter where you go. Whereas Canada has like a residency system. If you don't live in Canada and you just revoke, say, no, I have no address there. I don't live there. Even if I'm a citizen, I don't live there. I don't do business there. I have no connection. I'm going to the U.S. You'll only pay tax in the U.S. But if you're a U.S. actual permanent resident, like green card holder or passport holder, um, you can go wherever you want. You can leave the U.S. You know, I don't have a house there. I don't have a presence there. I don't have a business there. So long as you hold that U.S. passport, no matter where you go in the world, you're going to pay tax in the U.S. So some people opt to stay on visas forever to avoid that as well. Right. Now, here's something that people always worry about as well, too. Right. And, and maybe not so much for entrepreneurs or depending on how long you've been an entrepreneur for. But do you lose your OHIP? You no, know? I mean, <laughs> after six unless, months, unless, um, yeah, if you, if you revoke complete ties to Canada, sure, you end up losing a lot of things. And I don't know the exact details, but from my understanding, that means you got to have, you know, no address, no family connection. Um, you sever all tax paying relationships and everything. Yeah. After a period of time, you're not going to be inputting, you're going to lose that coverage, but I'm pretty sure there's a way that if you come back in or you maintain, like I've heard of guys, um, you know, changing their address to a family member's house or saying they still live here and they're coming back in a few months or they're paying minimal taxes on some arbitrary thing they set up just to show a presence like they're still in the country right. seems to be fine. That's definitely something you're gonna to want to talk to the lawyer about though on the accountant. Just out of curiosity, because you're not a lawyer, you're not an accountant, but you have a ton of information on this. How, like, how do you know so much about moving to the US? I mean, <laughs> I know you're doing it, but you clearly have a lot yeah. of knowledge about it. So like the way I do everything is kind of like when I, when I decide to do something, I like to know everything about it. I have a hard time just like, which is kind of to a, to a fault. I have a hard time just saying, oh yeah, I'll hire this guy. You do it. I kind of went through this process for about a year and a half where I already knew like when the pandemic started, I'd probably want to set this up. And so I started just talking to like, oh man, like literally lawyer after lawyer after lawyer. And I would like compare processes. This guy said this, this guy said, and I started to find like what seems to be the commonalities, what seems to be overlapping and what makes the most sense. 
And then I'd run that through accounting teams, and then a different accounting team. I'd do a US firm and a Canadian firm. Where, where are they different? What are they missing? And I start to like talk to all, until I found this perfect thing. And then I'd also have friends start going down there um, kind of ahead of me, like last year. And I start comparing their process. What did they go through? How did they, like, what were the issues? Who did they deal with? How did they set up their corporations? How did they set up their visas? And I kind of took all that information from all those sources and kind of came down to this, like, okay, this seems to be the easiest and most streamlined way to go through it all. Right. Now, I also heard something about the green cards where, and I think it might have happened last year, that in order to get the green card right now, if you were trying to apply for that now, that you would have to be vaccinated. And I'm not sure if you've heard that or not. Yeah. Do you also potentially see the fact, I'm sure there's some people listening to this that are vaccinated and there's probably people listening to it that are unvaccinated do you see them potentially doing this for the e1 and e2 visa as well too where you know somebody who's thinking about moving to florida or getting this at least set up and, and getting their business there that this is something that they should apply for this year yeah so it's already becoming a problem that's a, that's a really good question this is already becoming a problem um if you're unvaccinated which is something I'm gonna to have to deal with at this point. But um, what's happening is this is how they've done it. So there's a list when it comes to immigration, there's a list where you basically have to say, you agree that you have all required vaccinations to, entry the, to enter the country of the United States. And it lists like everything. It can, I don't know what they are. It could be like polio and this and that. Like you'll have like 10 things on there. They've added COVID-19 vaccine to that list, which means by default, all those visa programs, residency programs that have required you to agree and say, yes, I have all my vaccines, that now includes COVID-19. So that kind of is a problem. Um, my last lawyer's update on that when I asked him about it was saying at the time of my filing, which was about two months ago, the final filing, I guess, he said it still wouldn't have been an issue because we had filed. It shouldn't be a problem. Once we have the visa, we can get through the border. Um, it's no problem. They can't deny you. However, the news has changed since then, since I've last asked that question. So I have a feeling it is going to be an issue because they've said it is. They said, if you have a visa, you have a green card, doesn't matter. If you're going to come into the country, any means, doesn't matter how or when, you're going to need that now. Now, if they enforce that, how they check that, I don't know yet. I'm going to have to figure that out. But seeing what we're seeing in Europe with all these restrictions lift, I'm kind of getting super hopeful that that's going to be the same thing here. Um, I can't see how all of Europe is going to start letting this up and then we're going to be the only ones hanging on to it. So you can still apply without it. You can apply for your visa without showing your vaccines. It's just going to come down to the final, like when you go to cross that border and sit with that customs agent, um, or potentially they could ask you at the consulate when you go to do your first sign off, but you can still apply, you can still get the ball rolling and then you have time. So maybe it passes, maybe you end up getting vaccinated for some reason, or maybe you find another way around it. I would say just apply anyway and then figure it out when you get there. But yeah, it's going to be a definitely consideration. Got it. Now, I know you were talking about that 100,000, you know, you can maybe get it lowered as well too. If you're going down there with your spouse, is that a combined amount? Is that individuals? Oh. And then also too, to add to that, um, your spouse, do they have to be working there as well too, or that's not relevant? So for at least the ones I'm referring, so the E1 and E2, they apply, you're basically applying personally and you're going to qualify personally on your, on your deal. So if it's $100,000 investment E1, that's fine. If it's you have existing revenue E2, that's fine. And when you get it, you get it and automatically all those benefits will just extend to your spouse and any children up to the age of 21. They don't have to do anything special to qualify for those. So long as you get it, it will pass to them. And usually during the application, we'll get your spouse to fill out some paperwork too alongside you, um, which is what my wife had to do. And, um, but it's very basic, like name information, some history, some travel information, that's about it. And then when mine comes in, she gets it now. 
She can get a social security number when she's down there as your kids could if they were of age. Um, she can work if she wants to, she can get a job, she can go to bank accounts, but she does not have to as a requirement. The only requirements that need to be met are mine personally that I applied with. So if I say I'm doing with the business US, with the US, I gotta continue doing business with the US. And in five years, if my revenue threshold had dropped, they can revoke it. They say, no, we're not gonna renew it. Um, same thing with your investment. If five years goes by and you're not doing business anymore, you close down, you pulled your investment out, you're not gonna be able to renew that E1. So the only requirement is that you keep doing what you were there for and you qualified for, your family, it's just like a bonus. They can do whatever they want. They can work, they can not work, they can stay home, they can work in your business, doesn't matter. They get it by default. Right. What about franchises? Mm. What about franchises? How does how does that work? Like, you know, maybe you can do the real estate thing and then maybe your, you know, your spouse can maybe, you know, pick up a little Dunkin' Donuts or whatever they've yeah. got there for like yeah. 20, 30,000, maybe just hire two people. 100%. I mean, as far as I can tell, the E1 visa, the franchise will qualify because it is an investment. Like if you have a solid business plan, you say, yeah, I'm going to buy Dunkin' Donuts. Here's the cost. Here's the setup. That's an investment in the United States. It's business. There's no reason. Why Does it have to be the same investment though? Or can you switch it up along the way? Uh, no, you can switch it up along the way. As far as I know, you would just have to, when you go reapply the next time, like to renew, you'd give all the new information because every, every renewal is like a new, like they, they won't disqualify you to be clear on that. They won't disqualify you in the middle of a term. So like if I go in now and I get a five year, if I stop doing business right now, they're not going to cancel it. It's just when the end of the five years comes up and I go to renew it, they'll reevaluate. So if on the E1, you've changed business, that's fine. So long as you still qualify under the same like requirements and credentials, it won't be an issue. I don't think. Right. What about this? Like, I know we talked about E1s. I know we talked about E2s, but there's a student option. Could that be learning about real estate investing? Could that be taking your realtor license? Like, could that be any, like, does it have to be a, a college or university or could it be something related to real estate? So my initial understanding, see, I don't know too much about that one. And I'm going to preface this by saying, I'm going to give you also all my immigration lawyer contacts. If you want to share that with anyone from the show that asks, they'll have that answer in detail for you. But from my perspective, um, there are the education ones. However, the things that I've read into it were it has to be some form of like qualified education. So I don't know how exactly they gear it. I'm assuming it has to be probably some form of like post-secondary, like it's a university, it's a college, something that qualifies as like a, a registered education system. I don't know if it could be like a course or a program. Maybe real estate could be an interesting loophole. Like if there's an actual real estate certification program in the area you're moving to, maybe. Um, I'm not sure though, but that's a really interesting point. Yeah. Cause I mean, I wouldn't mind taking like an appraisal course yeah. and <laughs> you know, or a mortgage, but like, I mean, I, I don't yeah, know. There's like a bunch of different things, right? You could be a home inspector as well too. And appraiser yeah. contractor. <laughs> yeah. Just keep taking them all at the same time. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 yeah. It, it very well may be. I wonder the length of the program, how that affects it because they might say like, if there's a three-year visa, they'd be like, Oh, that program's six months. Like you don't need to live there for three years. Why would you need that? Versus like university right. where, you know, you're going to be there for five years, six years, and it's significant amount of investment because education visas really might as well be investment visas because what you're doing is pumping money into the U.S. economy. That's how they look at it. So I'm sure part yeah. of the, and I'm just making this up, but I'm sure part of the qualification is it's probably going to be more like university and college based stuff that pumps significant money into their economy and has a reason of why you need to live there long term. Um, but talk to an immigration lawyer. I mean, if you're listening to this, talk to an immigration lawyer. They'll have all those answers and there's is all kinds of loopholes and strategies. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Now I know the price of homes are obviously a lot cheaper down in Florida, but they are starting to creep up in price, right? I don't know if you've seen this, but it said that, uh, the top realtor in Florida right now is Doug Ford, right? <laughs> 
because <laughs> of everybody that's no, moving that's down true. there. <laughs> but um, but have you looked into now um, mortgages down there and qualifying yeah. for properties down there? And, you know, is it 20% you got to put down? Is it more? How does that work? And, and also, too, does the E2 visa help with that? Yeah, so on, on either visa, you're able to invest, obviously, in anything. You can buy a home. You can live there. Um, in terms of looking at properties, so firstly, yeah, Florida is exploding. Um, the prices are very akin to what's happening here. Like the people that live there are like, what the hell is going on? So you're really gonna have to do some digging to find some kind of pockets. I wanna, I wanna tell you where I'm looking. I just don't wanna give it away and everyone's gonna drive up the price knowing your audience, they're all gonna start buying there. Um, but you gotta look around and find some pockets um, as you go. But in terms of qualifying and all this, it's, it's very similar to here. So like on the personal side, there's two ways that you can go about doing it. If you're still a Canadian and you have a great relationship with your bank here, a lot of Canadian banks offer US mortgages if you plan on keeping a primary residence here. So if it's like a second mortgage or something like that, you know, CIBC will do it, RBC will do it. Um, that could be the easiest route. The reason I say that is when you first go to the US, something that like a lot of people overlook, your credit score doesn't transfer. So when you go to the US, you don't have a credit history. They don't know anything about what you've done. So if you try to go to a bank there with no history, no like real working capital, no credit score, and then you're like, I want a half million dollar mortgage, it's not an easy thing to do. It's a lot easier to get your mortgage here in Canada before you leave, finance the property, and then go live down there. That's, that's one of the easy ways. Now, the point of getting the visa though, is you can, so like, I'll give you my specific strategy. I'm getting a visa a little earlier than I plan to move down there. The reason I'm doing that is, as soon as I get that visa, I can open bank accounts, I can get credit cards, and I can start building credit. My plan is I'm going to slowly build credit from here, get my credit score, get a credit history, start writing business income through those bank accounts. And then by the time I'm ready to go down there, I can either finance the property from a bank here in Canada. And then at some point when I get down there, refinance it with a U.S. bank with my credit score and all that there. Or I can wait long enough till that all lines up. And when I get down there, the company's running, the income's flowing. I already have a credit score because I've been building it over the past year. And I can try to apply locally with a bank there because the one thing that they have a big benefit of is like, especially for investment, like the home stuff is a little different. They do have programs that allow some ridiculously low down payments, like a lot lower than we're allowed here um, for first time home buyers and all that stuff. But that's a whole other conversation. On the business side, they have a lot more investment type programs, like a lot more options and flexibility for investors and investor type financing, which is also really interesting. But anyway, for a home, that's the way that I, I would look at it. You either finance it from here and go down or you get your visa, you build your credit score, you build an income and, and, and history with the banks, and then just apply once you get down there or refinance later. It could just be a multi-step program. Hopefully that kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, that does. Yeah, that's, that's, a great, that's a great answer. And what about just like, you know, we hear a lot about LLCs in the US, we hear a lot about, you know, corporations here in Canada, and I'm sure you've looked into this for yourself, but what is the best way to structure in the US if you are gonna buy property or you're gonna start a business? You know, what, what did you do on your end? So like everything in business, it depends on how you're going to operate this because there's two defining kind of like structures and the strategies depending on the goal. So there's one structure. If you plan on keeping, like, let's say you're already an investor in Canada and you plan on keeping this corporation running and active, you just want to add to it by moving down there and operating something else. There's a structure for that. It's a flow through structure. If you plan on closing everything here and going down there, that also looks slightly different. And it depends on what scale of business you're going to operate, how you want to get paid, what tax brackets you fall into, all of those things. But what, I'll give you one of the really common ones just because this is the one that was advised to me 
And then I've talked to a couple other investors that are already down there and found out they did the same exact structure. Um, so I'll share with you that one because I think a lot of people are in that boat where they're like, okay, I'm not going to kill my entire Canadian company, but I do want to get something started down there. And so that structure is basically they set up a limited partnership in the U.S. for you. So you keep your Canadian corp. You don't change that. You set up a new limited partnership, and I have it here so I don't mess up, um, in the U.S., and that becomes like the operating and holding company, right? Then they create you a new C-Corp down there. So you're going to put two companies, a limited partnership and what they call, because they have C-Corps and S-Corps. It's a little different than here. There's two versions of them. So they set you up a C-Corp in the U.S. That C-Corp basically becomes a 1% partner in the limited partnership. The other 99% is your initial Canadian corp. So what ends up happening is your Canadian company owns the majority of the share of the operating company down there, but you still are a 1% controlling partner with limited liabilities. When anything happens, you're still out of it. And you have that flow through capacity where money can flow right through that corporation, right to you, right back to your Canadian corp. So that's been, it's, it gets a little complicated. And I'm going to say like definitely talk to an accountant who works with Canadians, not just any account in the US or not just any account here, find an accountant that works with Canadians doing business in the US because that kind of structure I've had recommended twice and I've had two or three investors confirm the same structure. It's just really complicated. Like I'm reading it off, but you got to go through that and make sure you understand that it makes sense. Uh, but that's the most common structure that I'm seeing. Right. And then did that, is that a recommendation from the immigration lawyer that you had to talk to this particular accountant or did you just use the accountant that you've been using over the last, you know, however long, several years? Um, I, I luckily had an interesting process. So the, the way I kind of started it was the lawyer that I started talking with um, was actually a Texas lawyer and he specializes in corporate law, had him on my podcast. He's the head of like the Texas chambers. So he does all this stuff for businesses coming into to the country. Um, and he connected me with the first account saying, this is the guy that does all our corporate setups for national clients. This is his structure, how his firm does it. Um, but then I had connected with another accounting firm, which is actually in Hamilton. Um, and they have a whole department that specializes in basically Canadian businesses that are doing business in the US. Um, and they went through the structure and lined up the same structure. If that was my goal, they said, if I wanted to not do business in Canada, kill that off, there's a different way to do it that looks a little more efficient. But if you have the Canadian corporation, that's the best way to structure it because you want to avoid double taxation personally, where you're not getting income from that U.S. source and the Canadian source and you're paying double on both sides. They have this, they have a way of explaining it, but they have a flow through structure where things aren't kept in the U.S. It just gets earned in the U.S., flows through you and into the Canadian company. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like just hearing it for the first time, it does seem complicated, but you've offered, I think at the beginning of the show to, to offer some of your team members that you've worked with along the way. So what we'll do is we'll put them in the show notes. Uh, because, you know, like we are not accountants, lawyers, any of that good stuff. But, you know, I wanted to bring Darren on because he's been through this process himself. And, you know, I know that you are so diligent when you do your research on things and, and you're willing to share it to, to give back to the community. And I think that is amazing because ultimately, like, you know, even if we, we want to do it as a, as, as a snowbird opportunity or a couple years to get away from these winters or whatever your reasoning is, it's always nice to have an idea of how to do it you know, the, the best way possible, the most efficient way possible. And, you know, every country has their own, their own ways to, to properly do it with, uh, with doing it the right way, paying the least amount of tax taxes legally and, and setting it up from a, a corporate standpoint correctly as well. So anything else, like any final thoughts that we haven't covered yet or things that you wanted to share? No, I think, I mean, the only thing I would say to people that are really listening, cause I'm sure there's some people that are listening to this, like, that are really on the fence and they're, they're just not sure because they have a ton of uncertainty right now. They don't know what the right decision is. And one of the biggest hangups to even moving is like, 
what about your family? Like your kids have friends, your spouse has friends, work, all these things. Like, how do you make that commitment? I think is something that's holding a lot of people back. And so a word on that is just like the, the most effective strategy I found is just taking everything step by step. Like you don't have to fully decide I'm done with Canada. I'm selling everything. My wife's quitting her job. My kids are getting pulled from school and I'm out. It doesn't have to look like that. This is the way that I approach it. What I'm doing in my own head right now is I'm going to do everything I can to stay in Canada, hope that it works out, hope that I can thrive here because there's benefit to that. We have all these networks that we've built, all these connections, the familiarity, the familiarity in the business landscape, you know, the credit, all these things we've built here are things we're leveraging and allow us to do business and invest more efficiently and grow quicker. We don't want to give that up for no reason. So I'm doing everything that I can to make it work here. I'm hoping the government clears things up. I'm hoping things get better. That's what's in my mind. But in the background, I'm preparing every possible contingency so that I don't have to blindly rely on that. So I'm saying, okay, I'm not saying, hey, family, we're all going to up and leave. I'm just saying I'm preparing things in the background in the case that things got so bad we want to up and leave, we can. And then in between those two processes, you can bridge that. Even if you don't go full, maybe next year you say, okay, we're going to spend six months. Let's poke around. Let's check out the real estate market. Maybe let's buy a deal. And then we'll come back to Canada for the summer. And you can start baby steps, but at least you have that visa. At least you can start building that credit score. At least you have the stuff because it's a bit of a process. And if you wait till the last minute and then decide, oh my God, this is not getting any better. I got to get out. You might not be able to, especially if the backlog starts queuing. It's like, you, you want to do this stuff now. So that's my advice for people on the fence is like, you don't have to sell this whole thing to your family and like, just make every plan you can to stay here and thrive, but have this as a backup plan. Start looking into it. Start talking to an immigration lawyer, talk to an accountant, make sure you understand how to do it. And if it makes sense, get the process rolling. You don't have to make the full commitment. You just have to take those first few steps and just piece by piece. That yeah, makes sense. No, that, that's great advice. It really is. Cause you know, I've talked to quite a few different people where they're like, okay, I'm just going to get up and I'm going to leave. And I know somebody who just recently went down to Florida and they're like, it's incredible. It's free. There are no masks. There's everything is open. But then after about two and a half weeks down there, um, she got homesick. And she's like, you know, should I buy something down here? And it's like, look, if you if you just go in there for the very first time, you may want to go down maybe another couple more times. You may want to check out different areas and see what you like, right? So I think that's fantastic advice. Just, just do this in baby steps. Just get things prepared. See if you even like Florida. And see if you can leave your parents behind or your friends and your siblings, right? So it is a big decision. Yeah, exactly. You know what? On that note with Florida, like there are other states too that are great, like Maybe mm -hmm. Florida isn't what you like or you go down, it's not really for you, but you know, try other states. Like Texas is still great and relatively open. Idaho is still great and relatively open. Montana seems to be doing great. Um, there's a lot of places that have different kind of lifestyles, different traits. And that's the beauty of the US too, is like there's you can be Bahamas type Caribbean, warm, hot, beautiful look, but you can also go in the mountains if you're that kind of like nature up north country type vibe, and that's more homey to you or it feels more comfortable to you. Um, and that's the beauty when you get the visa, by the way, I didn't mention this, but you know, it's not problem. It's not state specific. Like you can get the visa. It's for the whole United States where you choose to go is going to end up up to you, Alaska, Montana, Texas. Um, that's going to be your call. So that's something to consider too. Cause a lot of people are like, I never live in Florida, but maybe there's somewhere else there with the same amount of freedom and the same amount of opportunity. Um, I know a lot of real estate investors are looking at Arizona. That's become a big one. Um, they're a little more liberal than Texas and Florida, but they're, they're trending in a great direction. They're approaching things with logic, still a hell of a lot better than here, but that's something to consider. Look at your options. There's a lot of them. Don't just get stuck in kind of one. Amazing. Darren, where can our listeners reach out and find out more if they wanted to have a conversation with you? 
So best place for me nowadays is just Instagram. So it's just at Darren Cabral, my name. Um, I'm on there all the time. You can just DM me and I'll, I'll connect with you there. Worst case, you don't have Instagram, LinkedIn, same thing. Darren Cabral, you can connect with me there. Amazing. Darren. It was awesome. It was great. Yeah. Go ahead, Sarah. Gary, it's awesome to tag team with you as well. Yeah, no, it was good. It was a really good conversation. Uh, I learned a lot from this and I'm sure anybody else that's listened to it uh, will definitely, uh, here's what I say, listen to it again, right? You know, repetition is a key to, key to success. Yeah, right? absolutely. So thanks, Darren. Thanks very much, Darren. My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons, and at the time, they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away, and eventually, only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that, and the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked, and also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step -step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.